This is Let's Review, a bi-weekly podcast where we talk about art, culture, politics, and how it all intersects with identity. I'm Jen White. And I'm Kimberly Springer. And today we're going to talk about race and film. So how Hollywood treats race on the screen and also how we as an audience respond to it. And we've been hearing a lot about diversity or the lack thereof in Hollywood during this award season. And I wanted to start with Viola Davis's acceptance speech at this year's Screen Actors Guild Awards. All right, when I tell my daughter stories at night, inevitably a few things happen. Number one, I use my imagination. I always start with life and then I build from there. And then the other thing that happens is she always says, Mommy, can you put me in the story? And you know, it starts from the top up. So I'd like to thank Paul Lee, Shonda Rhimes, Betsy Beers, Bill DeLee, and Peter Nowak for thinking that a sexualized, messy, mysterious woman could be a 49-year-old, dark-skinned, African-American woman who looks like me. So here's an actress calling on Hollywood to make more of an effort to diversify what or who it puts on the screen. And we know that Hollywood has always dealt with race in some way, right? That it's never been absent from the screen. Right. I mean, the very first film, Birth of a Nation, was all about race. But to be fair, that didn't actually have any black actors. It was all white actors in black face. Right. And that's where, you know, whiteness as race is usually ignored or it's taken as the norm. So what we wanted to do was to get a brief, a very brief but educated take on where we stand with race as it's represented on movie screens today. So Dr. Miriam Petty joins us. She's assistant professor of radio, television, and film in Northwestern University's School of Communications. So Miriam writes, she curates film festivals, she develops media literacy curricula. In short, she knows what she's talking about, and we're really glad to have her with us today. So Miriam, we wanted to get your take on two things. First, where do you think we are today with how race is portrayed in Hollywood cinema? You know, it's interesting because you started out talking about Birth of a Nation, and it's 2015, which means it's the 100th anniversary uh, of the Birth of a Nation this year. And I'm actually going to be teaching a class on it at Northwestern in the fall. And so the Birth of a Nation is an interesting place to start for thinking about where we are now, um, because it's, it's actually not true that there aren't any black folks in Birth of a Nation. There are black folks. There are black actors in the film. There are most of the, all of the leads are white folks in blackface. But there are a number of black ex- extras and folks mm. that are in, like, scenes in the fields and stuff like that. Um, but it's, that's, a, that's a sort of nice metaphor <laughs> for what goes on a lot of the time, that you have films and stories that are primarily about white people in some sort of unremarked way. That is, what you were saying about whiteness doesn't get talked about as race. It just gets talked about as universal, as normative. And so more often than not, you have whiteness as the center normative story, and then you have um, race sort of on the side and as the thing that sort of makes that whiteness special, that makes that whiteness understood as neoliberal or liberal or progressive um, or as hip. Um, but it's, the, the stories are rarely uh, about people of color. And that sort of really speaks to even what you were saying about Viola Davis's uh, speech at, at, at SAG, you know, that her whole thing about 
her daughter asking her, mommy, can you put me in the story? Where am I in the story? Um, you know, I'm a parent myself. I have a four-year-old, and I'm always thinking about that. Where is, where is my kid? <laughs> where am I? Where is his dad? So where are his cousins? If we you know. then jump into the hot tub time machine and go <laughs> yes, up to the yes, nineteen right, right, and go right. up to the nineteen seventies, skipping several decades of film yeah, history, yeah. Um, right. would you say that we've made progress since the nineteen seventies? Um, it depends on how you define progress, right? <laughs> I'm not going to, this is going to be really irritating because I'm going to be one of those people. <laughs> like, Don't be that person. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> you know, but it does. I mean, it depends on what you mean by progress. I mean, there's a way in which, um, there's a lot of independent filmmaking, uh, that was going on at that time that we see in sort of different ways right now. There's a way that there's a lot of independent filmmaking going on right now that's made possible through the Internet. And, you know, folk like Issa Rae coming to the floor, mm-hmm. you know, that have that sort of way in. Um, there's a way that crowdsourcing has made a lot of voices, um, you know, that we wouldn't have heard in a lot of a lot of people's visions that we wouldn't have seen. Ava DuVernay is a great example of that, that you know, a lot of the kind of social media that brings attention to independent black filmmakers that we might not have seen, we do then, in fact, see them. We don't see them on, you know, the number of screens that we're going to see at Tyler Perry's films on. Um, but, you know, they are coming into, into, um, into the, into the um, sites of kind of more people than, than perhaps would have seen them otherwise. So I think it depends on what you mean by progress. Um, I think that there is something of a greater diversity of the kinds of roles that you can see black folk in. But at the same time, there is this kind of underlying similarity about the idea that blackness in film is a kind of functional thing, that it's there in order to make the white story do something else more often than not. Well, looking at some of the films that have come out in, in recent months, we've got uh, Top 5, that's Chris Rock's film, um, Black or White, this is this new film from Kevin Costner and Octavia Spencer, Selma, Dear White People, I'm sure there's been a Tyler Perry film released in the last year or so. In the last five minutes. In the last five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no shade, no shade to Tyler. But, you know, we wanted to get your perspective on how you think contemporary art, um, audiences rather are, are responding to the way race is being portrayed in Hollywood films. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's a really good question. I think that a film like Top 5 is a really good example because there's a way that I think that a movie like like Top 5 is a kind of meditation on love, on relationships, on friendship, um, on sex, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that, you know, could be understood in this sort of universal way, but it has a lot of culturally specific reference, you know, in the film. There are a lot of ways that the specificity of black folks in a kind of a regional way, because you get... Chris Rock's character traveling to Texas and meeting this character who's played by Cedric the Entertainer, who's mm. like this is sort of very Texas. Such a <laughs> disturbing, disturbing moment. He's going, What's that? <laughs> that was just that whole that whole event was just a little. Oh, it, it was, was harsh. Crazy. <laughs> it was crazy. 
<laughs> it was crazy. I mean, there's the New York specificity of it. There's the young professional specificity of it. There, You get the L.A. specificity of it. And so there's a way that the sort of dimensionality that you get of black folk in that film without it having to be about um, about race in some sort of pol- overly politicized kind of way, I think is really, really interesting. Well, and, and his really love interest in that film wasn't, she's not black. That's right. She's a Latina. It's Rosario Dawson. She's a Latina. But the thing that I thought was interesting even about that casting, um, because we've had that conversation, which I think is an important conversation to have about why can't we ever cast a black woman as a black male lead character's girlfriend? If we're going to be heteronormative about it, why can't it be a black woman? But I, what I appreciated even about that casting is that Rosario Dawson is not, she's cast as Latina in the film. It's not that she's sort of ambiguously raced. Mm-hmm. She has a Latina mother. She has a Latina kid. Mm-hmm. She talks about herself as Latina in the film. So it's not that she's sort of passing for a light-skinned, cute black girl, right. <laughs> as we often get <laughs> when we get Latina actresses in those roles. It's, it's specific. It's named. And I think that, that, I think that that's... Um, I think that's worth noting. We also have um, Gabrielle Union in the film as, mm. as Chris Rock's sort of other kind of problematic love interest, right? right? <laughs> but there's a way that the range, the diversity, the complexity of those, por- those portrayals um, in, in, top, in top five is really, is really powerful. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a great film. The other movie that I was thinking about that you didn't name um, is Beyond the Lights. Uh, mm-hmm. Gina Prince Bythewood's film that came out uh, over the holidays. It's fantastic. Mm. Completely, you know, it's called Beyond the Lights, ran under the radar in all of these ways, but it, this is the kind of film that does some of the same sorts of things in terms of fully fleshed out African American characters, not reduced to a function for whiteness, not reduced to some kind of stereotype, but black characters who have souls who mm. have personalities who are complicated and not just all one thing. So um, I was going to ask you about um, an authentic representation of black culture, and I'm putting authentic in quotes, but it sounds like you're saying that the ideal about these films is that they have racial specificity, but it's not a film about race and that they don't feel like they need to explain that specificity to the audience. Yeah. I mean, I don't mind it being a film about race. I think that's great when it can be. I just think that, you know, I'll, I'll go back and I'll put on my mom hat again for a minute. The thing that I notice when I'm trying to buy books uh, uh, with black characters in it for my son is that these books are either all about, I'm so happy that my hair is curly and stuff, mm-hmm. or they're books about, I'm not going to sit in the back of the bus, or they're books about, I live in Africa, or I live in the Sudan, or I live, right, that that when you get black characters, there's all of this careful specificity about blackness, whereas my son would love to read a book that's like, I ate a sandwich, and then I went and fed the dog, right? And <laughs> right. there's a black character doing, doing that, that, right? Uh-huh. So I don't, I don't mind. It's useful. There are times when it's very useful to have the book about, I'm so happy to be in the skin that I'm in. That's important. There's no question that that's important. But how about the book that's just like I, one of his favorite books is this book called If I Had a Raptor. And it's about this little black girl who goes and 
finds an eagle and raises it. (laughs) (laughs) Completely random. And it's the little black kid, right? Uh So it's not about if I had a a raptor black power. It's about if I had a raptor. (laughs) I would bring down the man with my raptor. (laughs) Right, right, right. Right. It doesn't have to be that. It's wonderful when it is, and it's useful when it is, and it's important when it is. But there's something about the weight that blackness is always expected to carry in terms of talking about race. We only are going to talk about race when there are black characters on screen. Miriam, I want to talk a little bit about what you see as perhaps being a modern day Chitlin circuit in film. Okay. And and first, for people who may not be familiar with what the Chitlin Circuit was, if you could explain that, because what I, I see happening is this tension between what are considered good black films and sure. what are not good black films. Sure. And sure, I'm using sure. quotes around that. Sure. I mean, well, it, okay. So the Chitlin Circuit is or was um, basically a kind of route that um, black performers on the vaudeville circuit basically traveled um, in the early 20th century. We're basically talking about any, almost any city that has a major black population, but we're also talking about smaller cities and towns where black folks were catered to. So you're talking about plays or vaudeville shows or troops or performers that followed this very familiar route of black clubs, you know, that catered to a black clientele. Got to, known, got to be known as the Chitlin Circuit, you know, in this sort of colloquial way um, because, because of, being, of, of it catering to black folks, because of it being perceived as somewhat lowbrow. Um, I, hope that, I hope that's the Chitlin Circuit that you're referring to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when, when you look at film today, do you see a modern equivalent? Um, in terms of those kinds of roots or in terms of that kind of segregation, in terms of that kind of ghettoization? Is that what you mean? Probably the latter. The latter, yeah. In terms of that kind I mean, you know, there is this sort of, uh, certainly there's a highbrow, lowbrow split, but I think a movie like Top 5 does a lot to sort of complicate that split. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a movie like Selma, right, that's clearly a prestige kind of film, right, and that it's, and, and Almost any time that you have a film that's associating itself with history and historical figures, you're going to get that prestige. Um, you know, you're going to get that prestige element in there. So, Cadillac Records is a good example of that. There's parts of that movie that you could consider really lowbrow, but because it's about historical figures, um, you know, you have this sort of prestige element to it. Um, a movie like Ray is like that. I mean, I'm going back because I just taught this class on biopics, so I'm like thinking back mm-hmm. a bit further. But Selma is certainly like that. Twelve Years a Slave is a prestige film in that same sort of way, um, and certainly has a kind of different kind of highbrow association, whereas, I mean, I think Tyler Perry's movies are, are understood to occupy that sort of, that sort of lowbrow space very, very frequently. Um, but but, but, but th- both types of, fil- of films are finding audiences, though. And I think, I think you, we'd be surprised that, <clears throat> that it's not, that the audiences for those films are not as different as, as we might, you know, expect. There's, you know, because number one, it's it's sort of still that thing of like black people are in the film, <laughs> so mm-hmm. we're going to go see it um, because what other movies are going to focus on black lives in that sort of way? I mean, to the extent that 
you know, I'm critical of Tyler Perry. I, he's somebody that I'm writing a book about right now, and I think he's really, really interesting. I have, I have a critique of him, but at the same time, the way that his films focus on more often than not black female protagonists, so you either can go see that or you can go see The Help, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, or you can go see Beyond the Lights if you can find it, right? So it's like, there's, it's, it's, it's this thing about the burden of representation and the way that there are so few representations still that are specifically about black folks and that center them in the narrative that when one comes out, there are all these expectations, there are all these ways that it has to satisfy everybody's, you know, uh, rec- everybody's requirements you know, there's all this extra pressure being put on these kinds of productions because there's so little out there. So when you finish that book, Miriam, will you come back and talk to us about it? Oh, my God, yes. Maybe even before. I would actually <laughs> like to request that you put an appendix in your book for how I understand my mother who loves Tyler Perry movies <laughs> and has seen them all three or four times. And then we'll talk to you about the book. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we may need to have your mother. I may have her as a consultant for this book, you know, because maybe oh, she, she, can, do it. she can help me figure some things out as well. Yeah, the know. details. Well, thank <laughs> exactly. you so, so much for joining us. Miriam Petty is assistant professor of radio, film and television at Northwestern University. Thanks so much for joining Thanks, us. Thanks, Miriam. Thanks for having me. Jen, we had a conversation before about whether artists of color, in terms of actors and directors and writers, have any obligation to the audience in the images that they put on the screen. And I think Miriam really captured the notion that I have in my head when she said the weight that blackness is expected to carry. I think that's a lot of weight and responsibility that we should carry. But I think you think differently about that. Well, I think my my view on it is a little more nuanced in that I'm a believer in people being able to pay their mortgages. And when you when you choose to be an actor or, or an artist, um, I think there's this sort of accepted belief that you're also taking on a level of financial risk uh, in your ability to make money. Miriam also talked about the limit, the, the limit of the number of roles and opportunities that are available for uh, black actors specifically. And you know, I think when an artist is trying to decide what roles to play and what roles are available, you know, that financial portion of it definitely comes into play, I think, for, for some actors. Um, you know, David Oyelowo commented on this issue recently in an interview, and he talked about how black actors are rewarded for roles in which they appear subservient, but movies in which a black character is the central driving force, those movies are difficult to make. So it's it's this sort of balance between what's available and how do I make my living and and be visible, right? As an actor, get my face and my name out there against the weight of this responsibility I carry. And I think I think it's mm. I think it's really challenging. I'm going to just overlook that you called my perspective not nuanced. No, no. And as soon as I said it, I was just like, oh. go to the idea of what about artistic integrity? Mm-hmm. It seems to me that rather than responsibility to community, there should be some sort of artistic integrity that says, these are the roles I will take. These are the roles I will not. But I think that that line is different for every artist. So you may have someone, uh, let me think about a, a, a role currently. So the film Black and White, this role that um, Octavia Spencer has in this movie with 
um, Kevin Costner, I haven't seen it. I don't think you've Mm-mm. seen it either, where she plays um, a, the grandmother of a biracial child. Her son is, is a drug addict. I'm not sure if he's in recovery or not. I don't know the whole backstory. There are actresses who would look at that role and say, I'm not going to play another black mother with a broken son. Mm-hmm. Okay? Because that doesn't feel responsible to me. There are other actresses who would say, this character is really rich and and we're, we're talking about issues of race and, and there's a biracial child and this is a mother who's present, who's taking care of. And, and I think this is a great representation of black womanhood. So I think that assuming that there's a, I don't think there's a fixed line when you're talking about artistic in- integrity. I think that line is different for every artist. And I question whether or not it is fair or even possible to project a fixed line on artists and say, this is where your your line of integrity should be. Mm-hmm. Well, when we talked before, you mentioned that it seems like the audience should hold some responsibility in right. what they go to see. And on another podcast that we love, The Read, mm. one of the podcasters, Kid Fury, says that he will buy tickets for films yeah. and then not go see them, which I thought was an interesting way to approach that challenge because I have that challenge knowing black history and knowing what happened in black film. And I take all of that with me into the cinema, but I also do worry about what other people who may not be as steeped in African-American history are taking into that, into the film and then taking out of it. Yeah, no. And I, and I agree with you. And I think there's something to be said about voting with your dollars. My issue with buying a ticket to a film that at a uh, heart level or an intellectual level I don't support is that by purchasing that ticket, you're sending a message to the people who make the films that I'm okay with this kind of Mm -hmm. film. If more people saw films like Top 5, which did, I think, fairly well Mm -hmm. at the box office, or saw more films that reflected the the line of integrity that you'd like to be shown in movies, I think that's how you have to send the message about what you want to see and the kinds of characters you want to see and the kinds you don't. That sends a message not just to the industry, but also to artists mm-hmm. about about what audiences really want. So I think it's 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 not uh, f- fair fair to put all of the responsibility on the artist. I think the audience has to hold some of that responsibility as well. Mm-hmm. So this is the segment we call for your review. We want to share some films for your review, movies that can serve as the springboard for you to continue this conversation or just give you some new perspectives on race and film. Kimberly, what, what are you recommending? I'm recommending two indie films. One of them is called Medicine for Melancholy, and it came out a few years ago, takes place in San Francisco, and it's a story of race and gentrification and what it means to be middle class and buying artisanal mayonnaise, (laughs) all of those really complicated things that we don't think about when it comes to young black people as they move through life. And then the other film is called Newly Weeds, and it's about a young couple who they like to smoke pot. They do it a lot. And one of them wants to go travel, and the guy is sort of getting in touch with her desire to go travel. And Mm. it's about the complications they have in trying to raise this money, but also really loving to smoke up. And it was more, (laughs) it's not just, you know, sort of a dazed and confused film. It was actually pretty funny and complicated. Oh, okay. All right. That sounds good. I have two two movies to add to my list. Um, I'm recommending... First of all, Birth of a, of a Nation. I need to go back and watch it, apparently, since I didn't remember there were actual black actors in there, but I was a little scarred after the experience. Um, or Gone with the Wind, because I think both of those films are very instructive. You can watch them and see reflections of um, 
the characterization of blackness in films that are put out today. So it's just very informative, I think. Um, and then moving forward a little bit in time, sort of two films about black life in college, uh, Dear White People, which came out last year about four black students um, at an Ivy League school. And um, it's it's funny but poignant and if you went to a majority white school I think <laughs> you could probably understand what some of these kids are dealing with. Great film. And then the other one is Spike Lee's 1988 film School Days which takes place at a historically black university and looks n not so much at race as at colorism um, and sort of this tension between being light skinned and dark skinned and it's just an interesting perspective of life in college but through that lens of blackness, but from very different perspectives. And those are my recommendations. Excellent. Well, that's it for our first episode of Let's Review. We want to send thanks out to Rebecca Williams, Sarah Alvarez, and Peg Watson for production support. We used Creative Commons music from Jasper Teen and Eladla. Thanks. Thank you ever so. If you want to take a glimpse at some of the films we mentioned in the podcast and find additional resources, you can visit our website. It's medium.com slash let's dash review. Thanks a lot. I'm Jen White. I'm Kimberly Springer. <laughs>